Okay, today is August the 25th. I know that for sure because today is my daughter's 40th birthday. can't believe I have a daughter 40 years old. Other uh, announcements. One is uh, Helen is going to have surgery in the morning on her back. Helen Lacombe, Art and Helen, you may have uh, seen them. They sit kind of towards the back. I understand that she had surgery, I don't know, what was it, about a month ago, something like that, and something pulled loose or something, so she's got to go back tomorrow and have surgery. Also, Pete is going to have uh, angioplasty done tomorrow, and what time is that going to be, Pete? 7.30. So when y'all wake up, remember Pete, and uh, that they will find out what, uh, what, the, what the problem is so that they can get him back into good health. And there's others that are having health problems all around, uh, too many to name, but we need to remember our brothers and sisters, especially from Country Bible Church, that are having these uh, health issues. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of prayer, uh, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the rain that we got yesterday. Uh, some of us got some. Some got more than others. And uh, maybe if there are there those here that didn't get rain, just pray that they'll be patient, that you're going to take care of their needs. And we thank you for this opportunity to be here and be able to concentrate in this nice facility that you've provided for us and that we can do what is most important in our life apart from growing in grace and knowledge of your word which is why we are here then life becomes a total train wreck it becomes a mess both in our circumstances but more importantly in our soul so we thank you that you have given us your mighty word that we can have a personal sense of eternal destiny. We can recognize that all that comes to pass is what you allow and what you bring about in order to achieve your purpose. And you've included us in that great plan. So we pray that you will help us to stand firm, that we will have that knowledge and have the will to do so. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are not going to go back to the visual that we had for the last two or three sessions. For those of you that were not here Tuesday night, we spent the entire time with question and answers. I think that's the first time we've done that in a while. But I think it was edifying uh, for everyone. I think that uh, once someone starts asking a question, people feed off of that and it just, and it just goes. But tonight we're going to get more into our normal format, and we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17 in our review. You know what? I might bring this now that I think about it. Um, 
everyone has already seen the timeline, but I think there may be some here that haven't seen the um, the last PowerPoint that we had, which was the difference between. No, I'm going to have to quit talking for a moment because I can't talk and find this at the same time. I'm sorry. Okay, here it is. Is this the... No, that's not the one. It's the other one. I'll just go over this quickly as a review for several of you. This is not the timeline that we discussed most of the time. We did um, go over this very quickly towards the end. This is essentially showing you the, the times of the Gentiles. 586, the Babylonians captured Israel. They were taken in phases back to Babylon. And from that point, 586... B.C. all the way to the second advent, the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. It's not going to be. It's not going to be until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent that the times of the Gentiles will end, and then that time of the Jewish reign, because there's a Jewish king, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule during the millennium, and. Everything is going to be different than it is now in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is the fact that the Jews are no longer going to be kicked around. They're not going to be the mongrel race. Indeed, they are going to be uh, the elite of the elite. And everyone in the, all the nations are going to have to bring tribute to them and so forth. Anyway, that's what this is showing. Um, this is Pentecost, the church age here rapture, y'all pretty well can uh, figure that out. But this is what I wanted to take you to that some of you did not see. It's important that you are able to distinguish between the rapture and the second advent. One of the things we're going to study in about probably 10 or 15 minutes is that there are phrases in the Bible that seem to be singular, like only one thing is going to happen. And one of the things that... Uh, one of those phrases is the second coming. And I have a book that I'm showing the young people a lot of the visuals from that from Clarence Larkin on dispensationalism. And he calls the rapture the first phase of Christ's coming, his, his second coming. I don't have a problem with that really because... Many things, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but there are many things that have phases in the Bible. And to understand the Bible and to be able to interpret it correctly, you have to understand this. So if someone refers to the rapture as the first phase of the second coming and the second advent as the second phase, that's okay. Because Jesus Christ is coming two more times from our historical standpoint. So if someone wants to say it's the second coming first phase rapture and the second coming second advent, that's okay. At least it is with me. I don't see anything wrong with it. 
But you do have to be able to make the distinction between the two, and that's what this, this PowerPoint is for. When Christ returns into the atmosphere of the earth, the rapture, believers meet him in the air, the second advent, he actually touches down. That's a very clear distinction. The rapture, the believers will be taken. At the second advent, unbelievers will be taken. Remember all the time we spent on that Tuesday? There are, in, in, in Matthew 25, we have, actually in 24 and 25, we have believe, uh, believers who are going to be left behind because this is when the millennium is going to start, Christ's reign, and the unbelievers are going to be taken. Then we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we have um, just the opposite. There are going to be be believers who are going to be taken and unbelievers are going to be left behind. And people get these mixed up. And it's very important to keep those distinctions. At the rapture, the bride is claimed. At the second advent, the bride. Who is the bride? Us. It's us. We're going to return with Jesus Christ in our resurrection bodies. At the rapture, the tribulation begins. At the second advent, the millennium begins. The rapture is imminent. The second advent is preceded by signs. If you were in the, second, uh, in the tribulational period and you knew Bible doctrine, you would know exactly where you are in God's plan. You could see what's, going, what's taking place. Not that you can't do that now. I think even now you can do that to a degree. You can see all the things that are, are, are going to have to take place uh, when the tribulation begins and that you can see all these things forming and you can, you can say we're getting close. But if you're in the tribulation, you can count the days to the second advent. The rapture brings comfort. The second advent brings judgment. Particularly, what judgment is this? It says it brings judgment. Haven't the people already been under judgment for seven years? What judgment is this talking about? Yeah, it's, it's actually there's going to be a lot of judgment that takes place at the second advent. You could say that the fact that all unbelievers are going to be uh, removed from planet Earth is called the baptism of fire. Certainly that would be a judgment. Uh, when Christ returns at Basra and starts annihilating all the armies that are aligned against him, that's certainly judgment. But then there's also going to be a judgment of the nations, the Gentiles, and Jesus Christ is going to determine who is believers and who are not, who stays and who goes. Who stays to populate the millennium and who goes to torments? Also, he's going to judge the Jews in a separate judgment. They'll be passing under the rod. And they too, will, the Jews that are believers, will enter, the popu uh, will enter the millennium to populate it. And the Jewish unbelievers will go where all unbelievers go, and that is to the compartment of hell called torments until they are, the time comes when they are to be judged again at the uh, great white throne judgment. The seventh thing here is that the rapture is the program for the church, 
The second advent is the program for Israel. The second advent is going to bring in the millennial kingdom. And it's actually, it's not going to be the same type of Jewish, uh, not the Jewish dispensation that we know as Daniel's 70th weeks when the Jews had the Mosaic law and then the church age interrupted it and then the last seven years are going to be for the Jews. But there's going to be a program for Israel in the millennium. Can anybody think of something that would verify that? Remember the unconditional promises that have been promised? They're going to be fulfilled in the millennium. So the millennium is essentially a Jewish dispensation in that sense, but it's not the same as what went on before. And certainly the, the tribulation is the last seven years of Daniel's 70th weeks, of the 470, uh, 490 years that are uh, prophesied. Are you all staying with me on this? It's, kind of, it's much harder to do if you don't have a timeline up there. The rapture is a mystery. The Old Testament prophets knew nothing of the church age. Even when Jesus Christ was on earth, he gave a few hints as to what was going to take place. They didn't know anything about the church age and the rapture and that type of thing. Just very little. Second advent, is uh, it's going to be known. Again, the, the, the mystery... When the church, I mean, excuse me, when the rapture occurs, most people on earth are going to be completely caught off guard. They're going to be shocked. They're going to be, they're going to be in panic mode. They're going to be so frightened. And they're not going to see it. Uh, <laughs> when I was teaching the, the kids yesterday, I was telling them about the rapture. Remember that, Ashley? And um, I said, it's just going to be bam, like that. And I said, nobody's going to be able to see it because it happens so fast. It's just like a bullet. When you shoot a bullet, can you see the bullet? No, you hear the sound, but you don't see it. That's how fast the rapture is, the, the, our departure is going to be. So um, if we were sitting here, if the rapture happened now, let's see there, for some reason, there are uh, two unbelievers in our midst, which is possible. I don't think it's probable at all, but, you know, I don't know. What they would find is a lot, there'd be a shout and then there'd be a, a, a bang, there'd be a noise that would be probably a hundred times worse than thunder. And by the time they blinked and they looked around, there'd be nothing but clothes everywhere and jewelry and books. You just, bam, it's gone. So how can you see that? They're not going to see it, but they are going to freak out. Anyhow... Uh, oh, I forgot to tell, finish my story. <laughs> I just finished in, finished telling them that, and it wasn't a minute later. Boom! <laughs> a big clap of thunder caught us all completely off guard. Nobody was expecting any rain or even a storm or anything. We all kind of, <laughs> okay, Lord, got your message, and uh, so we all ran outside, and it was. It was. Uh, it started raining. By the time I left, it was pouring here. Kind of reminds. I told him it reminds me when I was in. I guess I was in about the fourth grade, something like that, at uh, elementary school. And I was like most fourth graders in that room. We were born and reared in Houston. We had never seen snow before. And one of the kids looked out the window, and it was snowing. And he said one word, 
No! And the class emptied. Pew! Just outside. I mean, the teacher was just... <laughs> I guess that was kind of like the rapture. We were departing. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's a mystery. The second advent is known. Both this, They knew about it in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. At the rapture, Christians are are uh, judged. In other words, what I'm talking about that is once we are raptured, we go to the judgment seat of Christ. Second Advent, Jews and Gentiles are judged. I just explained that. There will not be any Christians in the tribulational period. There will be believers, but I'm designating Christians here as church-age believers. Then we have this last part. Number 10, the creation is unchanged at the rapture. If you take a lamb and set it by a lion after the, the rapture, what's going to happen? <laughs> the lion will thank you for lunch. Uh, at the second advent, creation is changed. The curse on earth will be removed. The ferocity of animals will be no more. It's going to be completely different. Number 11, Israel's covenants are unfulfilled. They're unfulfilled now. After we go to meet the Lord in the air, they will still be unfulfilled. They will not be fulfilled until after the second advent where during the millennium they will be fulfilled. That would be the Abrahamic, Davidic, Palestinian, and New Covenants. Number 12, evil is not judged during the time after we leave. It's not judged in the same way as it is at the second advent. Now, don't get mixed up here. God is judging the world of unbelievers. And that He is judging Israel for their stiff-necked rejection of their Messiah. But they are not judged in the sense of taking some to torments and leaving others, the believers will be left on earth. That judgment won't take place until after the day of wrath. This is um, at the second advent. Verse 14, it's, the rapture is for believers only. The second advent affects all mankind. 15, the Lord is at hand. As far as the rapture is concerned, verse 15, the kingdom is at hand. Thank you. 13 is before the day of wrath. That's the rapture. And uh, the second advent is after the day of wrath. That's an important one. Do you all know, if I gave you a quiz right now, if I said, okay, take out your paper and, and write down everything you know about the day of the Lord, what would you do? Freak out. Probably not, because it wouldn't be great. It wouldn't matter to you. Would you be able to do it? Remember, see, it helps me when I think of a timeline. Remember the broad day of the Lord starts? When, when does the broad day of the Lord start? Do you all remember? The, the broad day of the Lord starts when Antichrist is revealed. Remember that? The broad day of the Lord has two phases. It has the judgment phase, 
which lasts seven years. It has the blessing phase, which is a thousand years. Now, there's also what is known as the narrow day of the Lord. And that is the actual day that Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. I can tell I need to put that thing back up there. Um, because I see y'all looking like you're... Uh, you know, I, can, I can tell when you're straining. Thank you, Michael, for reminding me 13. That, that was very necessary there. Uh, number 16, believers only see Christ. 16, everyone will see Christ. Now, I've said I was not going to do this, but this shows you you can't always tell uh, where I'm going. I think you all need a little booster shot. Here we are. I guess I'm going to have to put that on full screen. By the way, we have these printouts down here. You know that these are printed out. If you didn't get one, they're, uh, they're printed out and they're on that uh, thicker paper. Full screen. Okay. Here's what I'm talking about. I've got to go up a little higher. See the broad, the, the day of the Lord, the broad view? See that down here? It starts right here, and this is when Antichrist is revealed. Remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's three things that must happen before the day of the Lord. The apostasy, the apostasia, the departure, we have to be gone. The restrainer, which is the Holy Spirit, needs to be removed. He's, that part, that's going to happen when we are gone. The third thing is that the Antichrist has to be revealed, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and it's described as the first seal in Revelation 6, 2. Those three things happen. Once those three things happen, the day of the Lord is going to begin, and it looks like it's commensurate with the seven-year covenant that the Antichrist is going to make with Israel. Y'all getting all that? And we don't know how long after the rapture occurs there's an unknown time frame here. I don't personally think it's going to be that long, but it, the, this covenant is not going to be made until Antichrist has proved himself, until people trust him, and that's when he's going to be revealed. He will be the man of the hour, the man of the year, and he's going to broker a peace with Israel and that's what's going to start the, the tribulational period. You got that? Okay. Here's the narrow day of the Lord, the one I was talking about. The narrow day of the Lord is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 through 5. And I think I didn't have room to put it on here. I guess I could have. It's in Joel chapter 3. Also, it describes the day of the Lord as that point in time when Christ is actually going to descend out of heaven at the second advent. By the way, where in the Bible is that further described? This is Joel describing it. Where else in the Bible would you see a description of the second advent, what Christ looks like? He's going to, it actually says he's going to break out of heaven. Revelation what? 
Come on, y'all. Right, 19, right, good. Yeah, what verse? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you have it there, okay. (laughs) Oh, I have it there. Wow, that's pretty bad when y'all don't get it and I have it on the thing. Man. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. <laughs> uh, good for you, Imogene. Okay, well, that just describes it. So um, I'm going to move on, but I want you to see. You have to have the reason it's important to understand that there's a broad day of the Lord, seven years judgment, a thousand years of blessing, is because some will go to. Um, up there to Zechariah, where it talks about the day of the Lord being when all the armies are assembled and so forth. And they say, how can the day of the Lord be that? Well, what, I'm, what we're going to get to in just a, a few moments is to show you that sometimes in the Bible you have the day of the Lord, but there's what I would you might say extenuating circumstances. There's other data that you have to plug in in order to understand it properly. And if all you thought was the day of the Lord was this one day, when boom, when it came down here, all the other verses that you have uh, with regards to the day of the Lord that's also going to happen, uh, the earth is going to be destroyed, the new heavens and new earth and so forth, it goes all the way to here. And then it also talks about it being here. If you, if you can't put all those pieces together, you're going to get confused and you're just going to try to say, well, I can't understand it, I, I never will, I just won't even try so if you look intently enough and you go with enough scriptures, you're going to see that the Bible will define itself. I'm going to get out of this now. Are you all ready to get out? Okay. Let's go to our scriptures now. Reason, the main reason I went, went put to these um, PowerPoints is for those who... Uh, we're not here, could see that distinction between the day of uh, the second advent and the rapture. Okay, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse Now may our Lord Jesus, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. I wrote a letter to a man that had written me. I get letters, I get emails, but most sometimes letters from people. This man happened to be in Florida. And I have no idea how he got my name and he knows about Country Bible Church. I would assume that it was from the Internet, but he didn't say. Anyway, I was able to explain to him. Uh, the first thing I did was give him the gospel. It took about two pages of giving him a good shot of the, what the difference is between uh, good works not being at all credited with regards to salvation. Good works has nothing, absolutely zero to do with salvation. But that's not to say that good works are not important. And oh, By the way, give me a verse that 
would show that good works are still part of the plan for Christians. Ephesians 2.10, that's one I had in mind, but there's another one. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17? <laughs> Did y'all see it? Look. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. We are expected as believers to produce good. Good works. And of course, we realize that that's talking about divine good. The type of good that the Holy Spirit is able to produce through us when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I've got, if you, I don't think you want to take notes on this. I guess I could put this on the board, but it's not big. Maybe somebody on the front row could see it. Verse 17, not only does Jesus Christ give us the unspeakable gift of taking care of our sin problem on the cross, he also, here's some other things that he does. See, we have Paul saying that he will comfort and strengthen your hearts for every good work and, work and, and, uh, good work and word. Look at some of the other things he does. He adopted us into his royal family. He gave us eternal life. He ascribed to us his own perfect righteousness appointed us to be his royal ambassadors, made us priests so that we can go straight to him without, uh, with, uh, to him through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go to a human priest. We are a priest. He gave us spiritual gifts, gave us his wonderful, immutable, inerrant word, which is alive and powerful, gave us an eternal destiny, offers us super grace rewards, decorations, crowns, privileges, opportunities, prepares a dwelling place for us to live with him for all eternity, gave us his word, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. By the way, where is that? Second Peter what? Good. Yes, 1-3. Y'all hear that? Did you make a mental note of that? We're talking about has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I was on the computer today and uh, Kevin Perkins was here Tuesday night and he was telling me about some ways that they had embedded scriptures as Pastor Bob Bolander, as, as they had a DVD, and he would say a, a scripture and they would show it under the... You know, just for a moment so you could read it. And I was going through that, and that's why I went there to look at it. But he was teaching on the, uh, the, the psychological teaching that they have. Uh, not only psychics, but the, the philosophy and all these type of things. People go to counselors, uh, licensed professionals, uh, to handle their, their issues in life. And he was doing a good job. He's just like Dave Hunt. He was nailing them. And he used this. This is one of the scriptures he went to is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The Bible says, why don't you all make a little note of that somewhere? That's worth remembering. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, I'm getting off track here a minute, but I want to do it. 
Go to, uh, also, you could write down Philippians chapter 4. This is another good scripture regarding the Bible's sufficiency. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, listen to this, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's through prayer. We go to God. And He gives us the peace and guards our hearts and minds. Don't you think that our hearts, our souls, our minds need protection, need guarding? That's what Bible doctrine does for us. We don't need to go to a shrink. We don't have to go to these uh, licensed professionals, these psychologists that charge you $150 an hour. Well, I got, I got right off on a rabbit trail, didn't I? But I thought that was fresh on my mind. I thought I'd put it fresh on yours. Back to our list. He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He gave us victory over death. He promised to return and receive us as His bride, the bride of Christ. He planned a royal wedding feast, promised to give us a resurrection body that is like that of Himself, our Lord, and will deliver us from the wrath to come. That is a short list of some of the other things that the Lord has done for us. And yet, most of us, maybe I should say, all of us are complainers. Anybody want to make a stand that they're not a complainer? You can't do that in a small church. <laughs> Maybe in a large one. Okay. Now we're going to chapter 3. And I have the 24 font for you here the, where you can see better. If I can find it. There it is. Okay. The first thing that we're going to look at in chapter 3 in our review is the doctrine of eternal life. The doctrine of eternal life. Now, we look at it, first of all, in the way that all eternal life is, I mean, the way that most people look at eternal life, the only way most people look at eternal life. Every believer should know that eternal life is the gift of God, that it is given to anyone who has faith alone in Christ alone. It is an integral part of the gospel. In the Greek, it's zoe ionios. It's an adjective. It means eternal life. This phrase is used 42 times in the New Testament. Here's a few of the verses that have it in that sense of the normal sense that people know it as. John 3.16. I'm not even going to quote that one. You all know that one. I'm not trying to discount it, but... Is anybody here that does not know John 3.16? I know that no one... <laughs> That's a safe question. Who's going to raise their hand? Nobody. Now, the panic, would, the panic would set in when I say, okay, now we're each going to take a turn to say it. <laughs> John 3.36. He who believes in the Son, what? Has. 
eternal life. Not that they're going to get it. That's a verb. It's a present active indicative. But he who does not obey, and of course that means does not believe. The Greek word there is apatho. It means a, a stubborn, obstinate refusal to believe something. That's what that word means. It's in the present active indicative as well. John 5:24. Did I finish John 3:36? What well, does not uh, believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 5:24. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has again. That's a verb, present active indicative, eternal life, and does not come into judgment. But look at this: has passed. That's a perfect active indicative. That's past tense. It happened in the past and the results go on. It's the results that are emphasized here. Active voice, indicative mood, reality. Has passed out of life into death. John 6:40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. You can tell that even in the English when it says may have. Usually it's in the subjunctive mood. Why is that in the subjunctive mood? They may have it. If they do what? If they believe in the Son. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see how many times... You know what that's talking about there? The rapture. So many times. Uh, if y'all had the Berean call... Uh, do y'all think about the things that... And the, the, the rapture. So many doctrines. I mean, it's not just Berean like here. Right in John's... I will raise him up on the last day. Do you think the believer that he was dead <laughs> be raised up? So we have all this whole, all this We have details. You're going to be raised up. So I'll throw that in. John 6, 47. Truly, truly I say to you, he who has eternal life. Present In these are your tents. All in Romans 6, 20. For the wages of death, but the free gift of God is eternal Jesus Christ, I don't get it. Believers receive. You know, it's not doesn't have any. But the one who that's not of faith, who shall? I thought all those other verses says we have eternal life. This receiving Christ of the other one, you have to. I agree that being just being heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you have to hope for the end of eternal life? This is experiential eternal life. John 17. And this is life that they may know thee, the God, who thou sent know him. First Timothy 6, 12. Fight the fate of faith. Take hold. Experience the volition of life. You're not taking life. But it's not going to... And this cable, cable's moving. Just a cable. When you take hold of eternal life, you're reaching up there and grabbing it, and there you go. You see what I'm talking about? It's a pitiful illustration. I just thought of it on the moment, but it seems to take hold of it. A lot of people have the eternal life. Here's the cable right over their head, and it can move them, taking hold of it, move them on down, but they don't ever get a hold of it. I'm already regretting saying that. I thought it was pretty good for a moment. Okay. Now, here's where I really wanted to get. I don't have much time left, and I hope you all aren't sleepy or tuning out because this is, this is, this is the meat right here. This is what very few people... No, but you know it, or will know it. 
Sometimes the Bible uses a word or a phrase in a positional sense and also in an experiential sense. Now, I have hammered and hammered and hammered sanctification. Positional sanctification, experiential sanctification. That should come right to you. But what I'm showing you, there are other words like that. For instance, overcome the world. You should be overcomers. In a positional sense, according to 1 John verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ have overcome the world in that sense, in a positional sense. But also, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Actually, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 is where you get the most description of rewards and decorations for our believers. And every time it, it precedes the award by saying, to the one who overcomes. It's not talking about believing in Christ overcoming. It's talking about those who endure to the end. They're growing. They're praying. They're applying. They're learning. Those are the ones that are going to experientially overcome the world and receive those rewards and decorations. The next one is an inheritance. There's a positional inheritance, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. That comes from the moment of sal eternal salvation. And there's an experiential inheritance, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. I was watching, you know, I watched so many, I, I watched DVDs, I'm on the computer, I watch the TV sometimes, I'll put it on a, a, a try to find a, Station. I, I like to watch. Uh, what's the tugboat captain? Uh, I don't know. Late great planet Earth. Hal Lindsey. I like to watch him sometimes. I watch so many things. I get. I can't remember where they all are. But I was listening to a discussion, and this this guy was trying to. Uh, they were on. Uh, I remember the verse was. Uh, they have a whole list of sins, and they say these will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm familiar with that. And he was trying to explain. He says, well, you know, there's an inheritance, uh, but you'll still be on, uh, you'll still go to heaven. And I found myself, I said, you're not going to inherit or inhabit. <laughs> you remember those? It's up to you. Do you want to inhabit heaven? Well, that's a done deal, isn't it? We're all going to inherit heaven. That's because it depends on God. But whether you're going to... No, I didn't say that right. We're all going to inhabit heaven. Okay, we're all going to inhabit heaven. And because that believes on, uh, depends on God. But how many of us are going to inherit heaven? Have inheriting rights? That's what that verse is all about. If it wasn't for that, none of us would even inhabit heaven, would we? Because one of the things in the list is anger. Ever been mad? Ever been angry? Two types of inheritance. Saved. This is, the, this is the one that probably most people get mixed up in. There's a positional salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you what? Saved. Positional sense in a moment of time because faith is the issue there. There's also an experiential sense, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 15. I don't have time. I'm, I'm battling the clock, so I can't go to all these verses. But these, these notes are on the website that you can get. You can get them from there. And if you don't have it, we'll print these out for you, whatever's necessary. Here we have the eternal life. Positional, John 3.16. Experiential, Romans 2.7. See, there's two types. 
what I'm showing you are these words have two different meanings. And if you don't get them right, you're going to get confused. And, the, and your selection is between positional or experiential. Here's another one. Justified. We're justified positionally before God, Romans 3.24, by faith. Experientially, James 2.24. If you don't understand this, you don't understand James. If you don't understand James, go hide under the bed when the Jehovah Witness comes because he's going there. He's going to James chapter 2. And he's going to show that a man is not justified by faith alone, but by works. What are you going to do with that? The salvation... What James is talking to believers. They already have that positional salvation or justification. Now he's talking about being justified by works. Two different types. Sanctified. Boy, we, <laughs> we've been over this one, haven't we? Positional sense, Hebrews 13, 12. Experiential sense, 2 Timothy 2, 21. All of these in blue, all of these on the left, is what God does for us at the moment of salvation. Everything to the right that is green depends upon us and God. We can't do it alone. God gives us His Spirit, but we have to, shall I say, work. Now, here's the other thing. This is what I want to get to. Hang in here. When a work or phrase is used in a positional sense, God does the work. When it's used in an experiential sense, God plus man does the work. The positional sense involves faith alone, while the experiential sense involves commitment and work. Do you have that? As you go through the Bible and you're reading these verses and you see these words, these words are all over the Bible. Sanctified, justified, eternal life, saved, inheritance, overcome. Well, they're all over the Bible. And each time you have to check the context to see if it's talking about positional or experiential. Did God do it for us at the moment we believed in Christ? Or is this something ongoing that we have to do? We are to what? Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What type of salvation is that? Experiential. Okay. Now... I can save this to next time unless you all have enough zip still to get it because this is good. You haven't seen it. I haven't taught this yet. It's not long. Y'all want to get it next time? Okay. All right. Here we go. Sometimes the Bible uses a phrase and it appears to be singular, but it is understood as a plural in the sense that it occurs in phases. Remember I told you we were going to get to this? But it's longer than the ten minutes I said. The regathering of Israel is one. Phase one is May 14, 1948. They were regathered in unbelief. Here's a few verses. Ezekiel 37, 8 and 12. Jeremiah 16, verses 15 and 16. God says that He's going to gather His people from all over the earth and gather them together. And these verses demonstrate that it had to occur May 14, 1948. No other time because they are there in unbelief. Then phase two is at the second advent. They're gathered in belief. Uh, I, I had, I guess this isn't the latest uh, deal here. The, the scripture for that is Isaiah 11.11. 11. You understand that? If I had the timeline, I would show you. Remember where all those judgments are going to take place when Jesus Christ returns at the second advent? 
there's going to be Jews all over the earth and he's going to gather all his people, all the Jews together from all nations and they're going to be uh, in Israel, Jerusalem. Yes, yes. Because it appears that there's no angels at the rapture. Remember we went like that? When, when it says then, uh, that it's going to begin with the shout of the archangel, it's like an archangel, we went over that. Anyway, that should be uh, right here, Isaiah 11:11. 11, 11. Now here's another one. This is all there is, just these two, I believe is all I have. I'm talking about when it looks like a phrase, the regathering of Israel sounds like it's just talking about one time, doesn't it? Like one regathering. But the Bible speaks of it in phases. They're going to be, they have already been regathered in unbelief. They're going to be regathered one more time at the second advent when Christ returns. There. That's that Isaiah 11, 11 verse. Also, the return of Christ, uh, His second coming. You ever heard of people talking about the second coming? That sounds like He's coming what? The second time, one time, right? That's not what's happening. Second coming is in two phases. This is what I told you Clarence Larkin does. The first phase of the second coming is the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. The second phase is the second advent, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. So Christ is coming two more times, even though the Bible sometimes refers to the second coming. To accurately interpret that, he's coming in two phases. First phase, rapture. Second phase, second advent. Oh, yeah, i got something else. This is the last part. The resurrections. Christ is the first fruit. Then we have the first resurrection. The Bible talks of the first resurrection. You think, okay, that's one time they're out here. No, it's in phases. Christ is the first fruits. Then you have the rapture of the church. And, the, and church age believers go in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. The second phase is the second advent where Old Testament and tribulational believers are going to receive their resurrection bodies. This is in Daniel 12, 2. Revelation 20, 20, verse 4, is when those Old Testament, I mean, excuse me, the tribulational saints who have been martyred, that's when they're going to get their resurrection bodies. And then I have phase 3 is the end of the millennium with millennial believers. And I don't have a verse for that, but that's my conjecture. This is what I deduce from Scripture. And then in this resurrections, we have one more, which is the second re resurrection, which is the end of the, at the end of the millennium. All unbelievers of all ages will be in that resurrection, and they will stand before Jesus Christ, and you know what's going to happen to them. I think it's Revelation... Yeah, let's see, the verse... Let me look at something just a second. Revelation 20. Um, yeah. Uh, open your Bibles. This is the last thing. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. I want you to do something. It's important that you mark your Bible this way or you're going to get confused. I'm talking about these resurrections. You have phase 1, 2, and 3 is the first resurrection. And the second resurrection just is the unbelievers being resurrected. But I want you to mark something in your Bibles to keep you straight here. Many of you may have already done this. 
Verse 4, I already told you, is where the martyred tribulational saints are going to get their resurrection body at this point. Verse 4. Then verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now you're thinking, well, wait a minute. That's the second resurrection. It doesn't come up here in any of these three phases. What you need to do if you haven't done it is at verse 5 where it starts, the rest, put a parenthesis and end it at completed. That is a parenthetical that's parenthetical in there. It's just like he stops. He's saying, uh, upon their forehead, this is verse 4, the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Remove the parenthesis, and it says this is the first resurrection. Got that? Since I was here, I thought I'd make that clear. So, the first resurrection... Christ led the way. He's the first fruits. And then there's going to be the phase one, the rapture, phase two, the second advent, Old Testament, and tribulational believers, phase three, the end of millennium, the millennial believers. And the second resurrection is unbelievers at the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment. It, verse five just makes it seem like because it has this is the first resurrection when actually it's not. That is the second Resurrection. It's just put there parenthetically. Is, the, is that confusing anyone? Okay. When you're looking at verse 4, it's talking about tribulational martyrs are going to be resurrected, and the context here is at the second advent. Okay? Then when you get to verse 5, you need to start that sentence with and put it in parenthesis. That whole sentence needs to be parenthetical. It's just like he's stopping there and giving you another thought. He's just thinking, and he's saying what's going to happen to the unbelievers here. And then he finishes the verse. When it says completed, when the thousand years were completed, you close the parenthesis there. And then, then you continue. This is the first resurrection. I have an arrow going from there up to verse 4. What he's describing in verse 5 is the second resurrection referring to unbelievers. He closes the sentence sounding like it is the first, but it's not. It's, when you understand that that's parenthetical, it, it's, it all makes sense. Sabi? Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, in fact, I might just go over this real quick again next time. But what I'm trying to show you is that, is, see all this? All of these, you have to have distinctions. You just can't, none of these just have one interpretation or one meaning. They all have these different meanings. If you don't understand these meanings and all these words, you're going to get mixed up. And these phrases down here appear like they are singular, but they're not. They come in, in, in phases. And you've got to be able to rightly divide that. I'm sorry I went over some. I didn't mean to do that. But we'll start there next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. It's so important that we are able, uh, uh, that we are able to rightly divide your word. It takes study. It takes concentration. It takes repetition. 
in order to get these things down pat in our soul. We cannot stand firm for the faith. We will be confounded and confused by the cults and by unbelievers if we don't have these straight. So we pray that you will help us to make a concerted effort to be able to make these distinctions so that we can be indeed good and faithful servants. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.